Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Adam Alter to talk with him about his brand new book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. And just really, I just really enjoyed this conversation. So really looking forward to bringing it to you. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to let you know about one thing, and that's if you enjoy this episode or if you consider yourself a lifelong learner, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I'm just giving bunches of recommendations for all sorts of different things that I'm learning. I do have a few of those uh, up right now and am looking to get back to be a little bit more consistent to that as, uh, as life calms down a little bit. And so, yeah, if you want recommendations or if just wanting to learn about a lot of different things, please subscribe to my Substack. And you know, here on the Learner's Corner, in the Learner's Corner, we really are trying to, I am trying to be the person who was there for me. And part of that is personal growth, you know, development, all of those things. And from time to time, you do run into significant things, significant challenges to where you just feel like you're stuck. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have Adam on the podcast as his uh, new book is coming out to talk with him about how do we break through some of those challenges, those plateaus, those moments to where we feel like we're stuck and, and left wondering what we could do next. And so let me tell you a little bit about Adam and then we're going to jump into the conversation and learn a little bit more about that. So Adam Alter is a professor of marketing and the Stansky Teaching Excellence Faculty Fellow at New York University Stern School of Business. He also holds an affiliated professorship in social psychology at NYU's psychology department. In 2020, he was voted the Professor of the Year by the faculty and student body at NYU Stern School of Business, and he was among the Poets and Quaint's 40 Best Professors Under 40 in 2015. He is also the New York Times bestselling author of two books, Drunk Tank Pink and Irresistible. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Adam, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Caleb. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, you've written this book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough. And I would just love to hear kind of where did this this idea, this journey begin for you in terms of research and even just getting interested in the idea of breakthroughs? Yeah, it started a long time ago, actually. So one of the first research projects I worked on as a graduate student, I was studying psychology at Princeton, and I was very interested in how people in different countries and cultures perceive change or anticipate change or are blindsided by change. And so we we ran a series of surveys where we gave people, for example, we told them it had been sunny for five days or it had been raining for five days or the stock market had performed badly for five days, or it had done well for five days or whatever, you know, just giving them trends where we said something had been happening for a period of time. And then we asked them, is that going to continue or is that going to change? 
And what we found was that people in the West, people in places like the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, tended to say that those periods were set in. A sunny period signaled that we were in something of a sort of sunny period in general, and so that would continue. Same with rain, same with a good period for the stock market, same for a bad period. And so they anticipated the continuation of trends. But people in East Asia in particular, in Japan, in South Korea, in China, said, well, obviously what's coming now is a change. You know, we've had this one situation for a while and now something new is coming. And, um, you know, that's consistent with a lot of Eastern philosophy, with Taoism, with the yin-yang, with balance, you know, that that's the whole sort of underlying principles of a lot of Eastern philosophy. And so what happens is when change comes, which it does, it comes often, things shift, people in the East tend to be better prepared for it. They're not blindsided by it. But people in the West, people in the US, for example, are blindsided by it much more often. And so what happens is they get stuck a lot. They feel these points of friction between transition points. And those transition points happen a lot. And so, you know, that's a very long answer to your question of where this book came from. But it came from this sense that we were poorly prepared in the West for change in particular. And really, people around the world in general, I think, are poorly prepared for it and, and poorly prepared for being stuck. And I wanted to write a manual for unsticking. And really, a lot of my research over the last 15 or 20 years has been exactly about that topic. And anatomy of a breakthrough is the product of all of that. Yeah, I, I'd love to dig deep in more of like the differences between the East and the West that you mentioned and how they respond to change. And I know that you said that both, both you know, they can struggle with, both of them can struggle with it. But you mentioned that the East can sometimes be better. Just, just talk to me more about that because you got me very intrigued by that. Yeah, so the idea is that... Um, you are sort of marinating always in the cultural background or backdrop in which you happen to emerge as a human being. And that can produce some really interesting differences in thought patterns. And, you know, that's not on some level, that's not surprising, right? We know there are big differences between the way we live our lives, even in different parts of the United States. And then looking at other countries and other cultures, the differences only grow larger. They're only magnified. One of those differences is that is, it's not just religious, but a sort of philosophical backdrop. And the philosophical backdrop associated with Taoism, with the yin-yang, with the idea of balance, oscillation, shifting between endpoints, that's an idea that pervades Eastern philosophy and Eastern thought mm. in a way that it doesn't for us in the West. That's just not something we talk about quite as much. I mean, I think on some level we know things shift and, and there are changes, but it's not central in the way it is in the East. And so if if... If one of those worldviews, either that things stay the same versus things change, is a better representation of the world, then that'll prepare those people better for the way the world works. Turns out the world is full of change. We we experience small and very large change constantly. And as a result, if you anticipate it, if you expect it, which is really the beginning of the book, is about exactly that, the importance of anticipating change and being ready for it, you'll be in a much better position to cope with it and not to get stuck for long and to be able to find breakthroughs on your path to get unstuck. Mm -hmm. Is is there any more to like us just being surprised by change in the West that you've just encountered? Because it's just what you said. Like it's it just seems like it is one of those things to where it's like, of course the world changes. Of course things aren't going to stay the same. But we are not prepared for it whenever it actually happens. Is there... I, 
I'm just really fascinated by like, what, what do you think catches us off guard or why do you think we're so caught off guard in that? Yeah, I think there are a few things going on there. One of them is that we are, you know, we're constantly hunting for control. It's a big part of what we do. And for example, medicine is far more sophisticated than it's ever been. Science is far more sophisticated. And as a result, it gives us this illusion of control over the world. Like we have a sense that we've, even, the, you know, over the pandemic and the coming through the pandemic and now being largely at the other point, the other side of it, that was a, a real shakeup, a real change that affected a lot of the world. But in some sense, having come through it, there's a there's an idea that medicine and science have got us through. Maybe not perfectly, but they've done it at least a half decent job of it. And so we we are steeped in this idea that we have dominion over the world in a way that I think is probably exaggerated. And it gives us this sense of complacency. And we come to just live in a particular rut or ruts, not maybe a more negative word than it should be, but we come to live in a particular way and assume that the world is going to operate a particular way. And it's very comfortable. And I think there's something a little bit fear inducing and um, concerning about the unknown. And so we don't like to, to spend too much time thinking about it or forecasting it. And so when change does happen, we are often caught off guard. Mm -hmm. You know, what are some of the things that you saw in your research that just lead to us reaching that that stuck point? Yeah, there are quite a few things. Um, one of the things is that um, it's important to know that being stuck is inevitable. Everyone in some respect seems to be stuck in some way fairly often. Sometimes they're small sticking points. Sometimes they're very large ones that entrench us for months, years, sometimes even decades. It varies quite a lot. Um, but in my experience, I ran a survey on thousands of people around the world. You ask people if there's an area where they're stuck, and they say yes. I mean, most people, almost everyone that I spoke to said yes. It was a near universal. And it didn't take them long to think about where they might be stuck or where they'd like to shift something or where they felt like they were a little bit hemmed in. Um, so when does it happen? It tends to happen, especially for long-term goals, it tends to happen in the middle of that goal. So um, whether it's about running a marathon, whether it's about weight loss, whether it's about saving a certain amount of money, whether it's some anything that takes a bit of time and planning and energy, where there's an end point, a beginning point, and then there's a whole period in the middle. Um, you're going to find the people in the middle in particular find experience something of a lull. And so that's one of the things we find. The other thing you find is that um, people, when they do the same thing over and over again, seem to hit a plateau. So what used to be beneficial and what used to feel like it was moving you forward stops having quite so reliable an effect. We find this in people learning languages using the same techniques. We find it in people doing the same fitness-based workouts. They stop having the same physiological benefits over time. Um, and it, it seems to be a sort of cross-cutting across lots of different areas of life. If you keep doing the same thing, eventually it's not going to be as effective. So over time, we all get stuck just because the things that we did that used to work won't work any longer. And so we have to be nimble. We have to be a bit agile. And the other thing that sometimes happens is that when you're doing something that takes a concerted, sustained period of effort, as you get to the end of that goal, if you haven't apportioned your resources perfectly, you might get stuck mm -hmm. close to the end, the finish line. The, the most vivid version of this is if you sometimes watch people running marathons or doing triathlons or things like that, towards the end of the race, sometimes very close to the finish line. They can see the finish line. They will collapse, physically collapse, exhausted. 
that's the physical manifestation of this idea that they just haven't quite apportioned their resources perfectly. It's a the scientific term is is a failure of teleo anticipation, anticipating the end, hmm. and it happens all the time. So really, I've just told you it happens in the middle, it happens at the end, and it happens <laughs> across time. It happens constantly, unfortunately. Yeah, um, you know, I have, have you found that is there is there different responses to each of those? You know, you mentioned that at the middle point, then you mentioned the plateau as well, and then collapsing at the end. Are there different responses that you've noticed that help people in each of that, or is it is it all pretty similar? No, it's not similar. That it's a good, very good question because there are very different responses. The best thing you can do when you have that midpoint lull is to shrink the midpoint. Um, and so one way to do that is if you have a goal, I, I can be getting very personal. I wrote this book and I had a goal of say writing a hundred thousand words by a certain date. The day you start writing that looms large. I mean, that's a huge thing that you have to do. And, and you're making so little, uh, progress day to day or hour to hour compared to the magnitude of that goal that you feel like you're stuck in the middle for a very long time. So one thing you can do is you can change the way you frame the goal. This is called narrow bracketing. So instead of thinking of it as 100,000 words, you could think about, about it as 100 sub goals of 1,000 words each. And that's doable. If you sit down for two or three hours, you'll, if you're having a decent day of writing, you'll crank out 1,000 words or maybe more. And so that means that you feel the positive feedback that you get from completing a goal much more regularly. And you don't have the, the midpoint lull because the, the goal is just too small to allow a midpoint. And so um, that's one really useful way of, of handling that particular issue. The the this failure of teleo anticipation when you've committed too many resources to something before you get to the end, largely that's about practice. It's about knowing your body. It's about knowing your brain. It's about understanding the way you react to extended goals and extended sustained application of either mental or physical resources. Because you have to you have to learn how to apportion those resources appropriately, and and you can only learn that by doing. Which is one of the reasons why training. And, and training in exactly, if this is a physical thing, training in exactly the way you'll be doing the thing on the day, on the test itself or the race itself, that's so important because you want to mimic that as closely as possible so there, there are no surprises on the day. Um, so I think those are those are two approaches, that, te- that shrinking the, the goal and, uh, you know, making sure that you know exactly what you're going to be in for on the day when you're actually doing the race or the test or whatever it might be. Those are very important approaches. Mm-hmm. Is there anything like whenever, whenever you hit your plateau that has helped? Because I can imagine, like that's that's something that I, you know, it con- like I don't know if constantly I'm trying to think about, but I'm trying to think about a lot of like, okay, yeah. what helps me, like almost like what helps me get to the next level, like what helps me experience a breakthrough, and so like whenever you you find yourself either, because it's not it's not even necessarily stalling you know, stalling out, but it's like, okay, I, I want to go to the next level in my performance or anything like that. How do you, how do you go about breaking through that plateau? Yeah. So I, I mean, the, the nice thing about that particular issue plateaus is the prescription is written in the the definition of what it is to plateau, which is to say that the thing you've been doing in the past no longer brings dividends. It no longer gives you the same boost or reward or, or positive feedback or positive effect that it used to give. And so you have to do something different. That's all you've got to do is change things up. So what you find is with uh, with marathon training, with gym regimes, with language learning, if you are doing a program that's smart, that knows its learners well or knows its people who are practicing well, if you're a coach, for example, 
you will say, hey, we're going to do a program for three months, but no longer than three months at a time. And then we're going to switch things up. And then we might rotate back in a year. We'll come back to the way we were doing it now, but we've got to, you've kind of got to keep your body and your brain surprised. You don't want to let them get complacent because the minute that happens, they, they kind of atrophy a little bit. They, they get a bit complacent and then they don't, they don't apply themselves. It's silly to, to personify them like that, to make them sound like people, but that's what, that's how they end up functioning. They stop doing for us what we're looking for them to do. And so we've got to keep them on their toes. You know, I, I, I just want to mention this thing. It just came to my mind as you were talking about it. I'd love for your thoughts on it too, because I, I thought about like going to the next level and depending on what the stakes are for what you feel like, oh man, I feel like I'm operating on a very high level and there's fear involved. There's fear involved because, well, what if I have to give up my current productivity or my, my current like level? And it's not as good. Like the experimenting isn't as good is that can you talk about that dynamic and even that that fear just that can be around that yeah it's one of the reasons people don't experiment they don't look for something better because they have something that's good enough it's, mm -hmm. this is known as satisficing it's uh where you you basically have something that's just over the bar you know out there there might be something there are greener pastures you if you hunt for for the, those better options you might find them but there's some risk and some friction in doing that because you have to either give up what you've been doing on the, in the past or spend some time hunting, spend some time experimenting, which sets you back in the short term. That's, you know, so much of what this book was about for me was um, the kind of paradoxes that come up when you are trying to get unstuck. The idea that to, to, to make progress in the long run, you have to basically stop right now. You've got to pause now, slow down. And people don't want to slow down. They don't like that idea. And as you've said, there's a lot of fear in, in pivoting and in changing and shifting what you do if what you do is good enough, if it works okay. And, and that's especially true because if you really want to be good at managing plateaus, you don't wait till you hit the plateau. You wait till the first sign that you're approaching the plateau when things are still working for you and you're already on the hunt for a new approach. So, um, you know, the, the good news is that for a lot of goals and a lot of different things that we do that take concerted effort, there are lots of different ways of going about that process. There are a hundred thousand, there are so many ways of learning languages. There are so many ways to train for an athletic event or for, you know, any kind of, of uh, physical pursuit. It doesn't matter what it is. So um, creativity is the same thing. We haven't really touched much on that, but if you're a, an artist or you're a writer, or if you're a musician or a filmmaker, it doesn't matter what you are. If you, if your work requires you to be creative in any respect, there are different strategies for, be, for, for turning out creative products. They will stop working too. But good, the good news is there are so many different, different approaches. You just have to hunt for them. Hmm. You got, you got a lot there that I want to follow up on Adam. <laughs> um, what, how, how do you know or what have you seen in the research that helps you identify whenever you're nearing a plateau? Yeah, so, you know, the nice thing about most of these domains is that you can subjectively, in other words, feel in yourself, sense that you are approaching a plateau. It's usually pretty clear that things are starting to slow down. You're not getting quite the rate of, of return that you had before. Um, and it doesn't matter what domain it is. Like I, I think about strategies for writing a book, which is the most recent one for me. There were days when I used the same technique, say 10 days in a row, and I could feel based on the output and based on even just how fluid the whole process felt that it wasn't working quite as well. The, the key though, 
this this isn't hidden from you, but you have to look for it. You have to turn your mind's eye to it. So you basically have to introspect. So a lot of what the book is about is is know what the right questions are. What are the things I should be asking myself? And one of the questions is, has my rate of productivity slowed despite the fact that I'm doing what worked really well yesterday or the day before? And you can start to feel when things just get a little bit gummed up. It's getting a little harder to make the progress that came more freely a day or two ago. And then the best thing is when you have a domain where you have objective numerical feedback, let's say it's race times or if you're a runner or it's um, how many words you write that you think of as quality words or how many ideas for an advertising scheme that you have, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter what the domain is, you often have numerical feedback and you can rate the quality of the feedback and feel pretty clearly when you're slowing down. So I think there are a lot of big problems that we're faced with. One of them is, this This isn't one of them, is figuring out when you're approaching a plateau. I think it's reasonably clear most of the time. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to what you mentioned about paradoxes and that you mentioned that you discovered several throughout them. Can you just talk about some of the other paradoxes that you discovered in your research? Yeah, I mentioned this idea that to, to make progress in the long run, you have to pause or slow down. And uh, I, this just came up over and over and over again. I, I did a lot of research into the, the approaches of some very, very talented people, you know, the world's best at all sorts of things. So here are some of the people who would routinely stop before they did anything. They would lie on their backs and stare at the ceiling. Einstein was famous for this. He would have these bursts of productivity and then he would lie on his back. You can almost imagine him with his mane of hair staring up at the ceiling doing absolutely nothing. Mozart was very well known for having this very patchy burst of productivity followed by nothing. And he would do nothing and he would just pause. But that's that's taking a rest, which I think a lot of people do. And we know that that's important. You know, you don't want to burn out. But then there are some more sort of concerted and thoughtful ways to pause that I find really interesting. Um, one of them is the soccer player, Lionel Messi, who I think is he's the best player today, I would say, and possibly of all time. That's debatable. Um, when you watch the way soccer players, professional players play the game, when the whistle blows, they have 90 minutes and then there's a bit of injury time at the end. And the the whistle blows and they're all kind of, they start running. They start moving and they start make according to their formations, they move around a lot and it starts quickly. And often the game starts with quite a burst. A lot of goals are scored quite early in the game. And um, Lionel Messi doesn't do that. He is very famous for, first of all, for being a little bit anxious. So when the game begins, he feels anxious. He know, we know this from some things his coaches have said, and he's even admitted it himself. So what he does is he spends the first few minutes of the game walking around, mostly in the center circle. He barely moves. He's kind of like plodding around while everyone else around him, if you trace them, if you do a little diagram of where they're moving after five minutes, they've been all over the field. But Messi's he's barely moving. But what he's doing is he's looking at everyone else. He's noticing, you know, these two players are working really well together. This one's always out of position. There's a vulnerability in this one. He's figured out the map of the game in those first few minutes so that for the rest of the game, he's much better prepared and much better placed to do an extremely good job of tactically dominating the game. And we know this because he scores goals in every minute of the game, but he's never scored in the first two minutes of the game because effectively he's not yet playing. But he does that in the service of those other 88 plus minutes, which I think is a great, there are other examples, but that's, I think, a very extreme example of this particular paradox of doing nothing now in the service of great progress and not being stuck later on. Mm. Yeah, two two others uh, that came to mind that I'd love for you to elaborate on is you talk about dial, like dialing back the pressure 
in high mm-hmm. pressure moments to lead to greater performance. And the other thing is uh, lo- lowering standards as well mm-hmm. in order to get higher performance. Can you talk about both of those? Yeah, dialing back the pressure. Um, there are lots of examples of this from from people I think of as excellent leaders. And they're not always excellent leaders, but in this context, they are. And one example of this is is uh, the jazz giant um, Miles Davis. And there's a there's a fa- very famous story of of uh, Herbie Hancock, the jazz pianist, one of the great jazz pianists of the 20th century and and today still, um, trying out for the Davis Band for Miles Davis's band. And he went to Miles Davis's house with a whole lot of the the studio musicians musicians who played, and actually the tour musicians as well who played with Miles and his band. And um, Hancock tells the story of what it was like to play there. And, and, you know, Davis is known or was known at the time um, for being extremely hard on his musicians, exacting. He knew exactly what he wanted from them. If they didn't deliver exactly what he had in his his mind's eye, he got very angry with them. And so they were scared of him. A lot of them feared him. And Hancock was the same. He talks about being terrified. You know, he walks into Davis's house all these giants are in there, these people he's looked up to his whole life, and he's absolutely overwhelmed by the the weight of, of what that means and, and how important this tryout is, this audition. And Davis is with the band, and Hancock starts playing, and, and Davis throws his trumpet down on the couch, on the sofa, and walks upstairs, and he's gone for three days while all the other musicians play. And um, Hancock forgets about Davis. He just sort of assumes he's bombed the audition. Davis isn't there because he's just not that interested in in Hancock. At the end of the third day, Miles comes back down, picks up his trumpet, starts playing with the band again, and and Hancock says to him, "What happened? I thought I thought I was done. Like you 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 left." And Davis says, "No, I could feel that the the weight of expectation was a, a bit much, and I wanted to see what you could do. So I went upstairs and I sat on my intercom. I could hear everything. I just didn't want to be in the room." This from a guy who on stage would shout at his musicians for not playing the right way. And yet here he knew, and and Hancock's not the only one who's described this. He knew in just the right moments when to take down the pressure. And he ended up saying to Hancock after that, you're you're a terrific star and I want you in my band and I want you to start playing next week. Um, So that's one example. There's John McLaughlin, who's another musician that played with Davis, said the same thing. Davis just knew the right way to describe something and to take down the pressure at just the right moments to get the best from his musicians. And when they could handle it, he was tough on them. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's, that's that. And then the, the lowering expectations when you asked about this, the big idea here is that we, especially in domains that require creativity or um, insight, we hold ourselves to a very high standard. We, we do in other domains too, but we look for something radically new and original and different and um, that's paralyzing. It's it's like demanding perfection. And perfection is a standard that we can almost never reach. And in the context of creative ideas, radical originality, something that the world has never seen before, is vanishingly rare. Almost everything is based on something else. It, it bridges together two ideas that someone else has had. And um, so a better way to come up with creative ideas is to recombine, as I call it, or combine existing ideas into something new find new ways to put things that are old together to make a new product. Um, And it's funny because we think of a lot of examples of true originality that way as though they're genuinely new. But when you consult the people who came up with them, whether they're artists, Bob Dylan's a famous example. A lot of musicians who are very good themselves say Bob Dylan was the true original of the 20th century. No one's like him. But then when you go to Dylan, he's like, oh, no, I borrowed borrowed from every I borrowed from 
uh, Odetta, who is a folk musician, and I borrowed from rock and I borrowed from the pop at the time. He was borrowing from different elements constantly, recombining them to create something new that was Dylan-esque. But to us, it looks original. But he never thought of it that way. Otherwise, he might have been paralyzed by it. Mm -hmm. So we've got to know when to dial things down, when to dial down the pressure if we're leading other people, but also on ourselves to know when to say we're, we're hunting for something that's just going to be very hard to find, and that's just going to paralyze us. What are some of the other things, you know, regarding creativity that really just stood out to you in the research about how to be more creative? One of them is we think of creativity as being unbounded, that the best way to be creative is not to have any constraints, you know, just like let your mind run wild, go free, think divergently, different from the way that everyone else is thinking. And here's another one of the paradoxes. You asked about this earlier, that we don't do well with unconstrained environments, especially if we're struggling. The, the choices we have when we're spoiled by them can be overwhelming and it can be very, very difficult to make progress in a creative domain. So one of the most useful things you can do is to simplify the, the problem, is you can constrain yourself, introduce artificial constraints. There are a lot of examples of this. Um, I have my own personal example here. I'm colorblind, but I paint and draw. And um, for years, I would create these works, these uh, artworks that were, sometimes they took me a year to create, but a lot of that time I was just stuck on color decisions. So I couldn't work out the right color for something. I'd spend days trying to figure out what color to make the grass or something like that. And it's silly because it didn't matter that much, but I was very fixated on it. And I knew I couldn't see grass the way I wanted to be seeing it or should be seeing it. And so what I started doing was I, I yanked out the, the hue or color decision domain from my art. I don't do art with color anymore. Um, and there's a very famous French painter named Pierre Soulage who only paints with black and then with black and white and makes gray. And he does it because precisely for that reason, he wants to work on his, wanted to work on his technique and the way he applied the paint to the canvas, not worrying about hue. Some painters, hue is very important. The color is important. But if you strip out that element, you can focus on other things. And then that leads to more creativity in other domains. Um, and there are so many examples of this, uh, of, of people who have yanked out an element from what they're doing just to simplify it and then to liberate themselves to perfect the area that they, they really want to focus on. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you write about early on in the book is you talk about different traps as well that stop us. Mm -hmm. In this and I would love for you to talk about um, the, the the airplane maintenance and the small check uh, yeah. problem in preventative maintenance because that's just one to where I thought man I, I need to think through that more of how to apply that and what can that look like in my own personal life yeah this is so powerful it's it's people don't like doing this and I'll explain why in a minute but yeah. it's so useful if you can just take a day out of your life to put these systems in place. It's very useful. But preventive maintenance is this idea with aircraft that obviously it's critically important that when aircraft fly, they are safe. We don't have a lot of margin for error there. You don't want there to be a problem on an airplane, especially a big problem. And so they have to be maintained well. The problem is most aircraft are running almost all the time. So how do you make sure that they are both safe, but also always in the air? 
you know, you've, you've got to have them down on the ground so you can check them. So what they have with aircraft is they have different systems of checks. They have small checks or A checks or B checks that happen pretty regularly. But then there are much bigger checks, C checks and D checks that happen sometimes every few months, sometimes every few years. And these are much more comprehensive. They require grounding the plane. They require a tear down and a re putting together of the, the parts of the airplane sometimes. So it, there are these different levels of checks, but they are all in the service of preventing issues from happening before they arise. And so those A and B checks that are much more regular, but they're quick, are designed to identify a problem before it arises. Because the thinking is, if you know there's a problem, it's going to get worse. This is true in almost every area of life. And this is why it's a trap and why it's in the chapter on traps. Because when something's small, you can keep pushing through it. You can keep doing whatever you were doing. You don't have to slow down to fix it. But by not fixing it, you create much bigger problems for yourself later. Now, in our own lives, preventive maintenance is this idea that if you every, say, week or month or three months or six months do a little audit of how things are functioning, maybe it could be your, your health or is my car running the way it should? Or are there any things in my house that I need to attend to? You know, the things that are most expensive in our lives to fix and that have the greatest cost when they don't work. Then you are in a much better place to extend the longevity of those things, whether they're our bodies, whether they're our cars and our homes, and to make sure that we aren't stuck in some respect later on, where suddenly what could have been fixed for $20 earlier on is now going to cost thousands and thousands. And, and it's a great general philosophy. I explain in the book how to do this and what it means, but it's a great general philosophy for living life um, because it means that some problems are going to be big and there's not much you can do about it, but you're going to minimize the number of problems that'll be huge and you'll deal with them as they arise. And uh, it pays dividends. Mm -hmm. The other one that you mentioned is, is like, it's in the, it's far into the future problem. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, that's that's a similar idea. It's that, um, you know, sometimes you know something's going to come up, but it's in the distant future. Like, it, let's not worry about it too much now. I talk about the Y2K bug. I don't know how many people remember that or how many were alive during that time. But um, the Y2K bug was this idea that when the clocks hit uh, the year 2000 and that the last two digits in the date in the year went to zero, zero, that some computers, based on the way they were programmed with two digits, would think it was 1900 instead of 2000. And that would throw off all sorts of calendars. It would cause sorts of all sorts of conflicts in those um, processing systems that might, you know, there were fears that planes would fall out of the sky, that power plants would blow up. They had all sorts of concerns that came from this Y2K bug and the idea that this would happen. But they first discovered it 40 years before it happened or was due to happen. And so this was early enough. This is in the 60s, um, a guy named Bob Beamer. And um, he, he knew that this was going to be a problem. He didn't know how big a problem it would be. But he told people that he was speaking to, governments included, this is going to cost you a lot of money in 30 or 40 years. Depends on how soon you want to attack it. But we don't have that many sophisticated computers in the 60s. They're going to get more sophisticated as we approach the year 2000. There'll be more of them. It's going to be a much costlier problem to fix if we don't do it now. And everyone said, this is silly. This is nonsense. And so governments, national governments, federal governments were blindsided by this. Well, they said they were because obviously the governments in the 1960s were like, we have to deal with the things that are going on now. We're not going to put money into this thing. We'll just pass it along to the next prime minister or president or whatever. And so it just kept getting kicked along. The can kept getting kicked along the road until the year 1993 and then 1994, then 1995. And suddenly governments were paralyzed by this problem that ended up being 
ridiculously expensive to fix. Millions and millions and sometimes billions of dollars to fix. And they mostly did a reasonable job of it. And uh, people say that it's good that they did because we don't know how big an issue Y2K bug might have been. But this is a classic example of you could have fixed it in the 60s for almost nothing. It would have been trivial, but we waited. And that's what we do a lot in our lives. We do it with, uh, you know, you have a sore tooth. You let it get to the point where you need root canal. <laughs> this is just how we live our lives. We let everything just go on as, as long as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to me more. Like, what do you think is behind that? Like for, for both of those things, why, like, do we just think we're going to have time later? Why don't, why don't we deal with them immediately? It's partly it's that partly we have this, uh, there's this fallacy that we will have more time in the future. So mm-hmm. if I say to you, will you give me an hour of your day tomorrow to help me pack my car? I need to take some stuff to, you know, somewhere. I, I've got to take some stuff to the Goodwill and I need an hour of your time versus will you do that in three months let's put a day in the calendar now people are like oh three months totally happy to do it in three months but i don't have time tomorrow believe me the day before that in three months that time that you just said you would have time you will not have to, you will have the same amount of not time that you have now so partly it's the sense that we're always going to have more time in the future and if you look at your calendar in three months it looks pretty empty now that's because it hasn't filled up yet but it will so that's part of it but it's also this myopia we have which is that we are myopia basically is just short-sightedness that we focus on the here and now whatever is in front of us engulfs our attention it's the thing that we pay most most attention to because it's most immediate it's most pressing it's most urgent and so we we apportion our resources in such a way that we leave very little left over for for the long-term decision making that's a big problem for humans it's one of the main areas of study in my field how do you get people to save for their retirements how do you get people to eat better how do you get them to exercise how do you get them to make all sorts of long-term decisions that require that they give up something today? They're going to have to, you know, they don't have much time today, but they're going to have to give up some of that time today for their future selves. And that's a huge challenge that a lot of people face and, and don't do very well at. Yeah. Talk to me about how do you go about helping people focus on the long-term? Like even, I mean, you just you just mentioned several things that are like everybody, most people would go, those are important, but mm-hmm. we don't deal with them. <laughs> So how do we go about focusing on that long-termness either in ourselves or helping others see that? Yeah. So I, I did this fun project actually with one of the um, insurance, uh, it, was a, it was a retirement savings and insurance company. And, you know, insurance is the same. It's like, I'm going to have to give up some money today just in case something bad happens in the future. It's all, it's all about self-control and saying, I'm not going to take this thing that's in front of me. I'm going to save it and use it for something else that's good for me later on. And so what we did was um, in this project that was about saving for retirement, we we got a hypnotist to hypnotize these people in their 20s and to convince them as they were hypnotized that they were actually 65 and they were waking up on the first day of their retirements, but they hadn't saved enough money and to say what it felt like. And these 25-year-olds who thought they were 65 were crestfallen. They were like, oh, I... I really wanted to play golf and go traveling. And I, I guess I can't do any of that stuff now. And I feel bad about that. And I wish I'd done things differently. And then when they snapped out of it, we were like, well, what was it like to be 65? And I, was like, I, I, can't, I, I thought my 65-year-old self was like a total stranger. Like it, I couldn't even imagine what it would be like in 40 years. But you made me feel what it was like. Mm. And so a lot of it is mentally transporting yourself into that future person. And to realize that it's you, it's just you in the future. It's an extension of who you are. Once you realize that, 
you stop treating that person like a second class citizen and you're like, that's just me. It's me. And I'm probably going to get there and I'm going to need these things and I'm going to be angry with my current self that wasn't doing the right thing. And so that's one way to do it. Another really useful thing that you can do, there's a, a great scheme um, that was proposed by um, Shlomo Benazzi and Richard Thaler. Richard Thaler is a Nobel Prize winning, winning economist and they work on behavioral economics problems. And one thing they realized was that people don't want to save more for retirement because they want their money today. But one thing you can do, it's called save more tomorrow, is you say to people, the next time you get a raise, we're going to put a portion of your raise towards your retirement. And each successive raise, most people get an annual raise, we're going to do the same thing. So the good thing about making that decision today is it's, it doesn't hurt me today. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's like making the decision to help someone fill, load their car in a year or in three months. So people say, yeah, sure, I'll do that. That sounds fine. And then as the raise comes, they don't miss that money because they've never really had it before. It's just a portion of it goes to retirement and that, that's very effective. Mm -hmm. So you're capitalizing on this, this bias that people have and using it in their favor. Um, you know, normally it undermines them, but in this case, it's helpful. You know, you have this uh, quoted there that I want to uh, I want to read, and then I got a question I want to ask you about it. You say exceptional talent often looks like an act of revolution, a person doing something in a way no one has done it has ever done it before. But many re revolutionary talents are actually built on the foundation of evolutionary tweaks. And so, one, I'd love to have you just elaborate on that quote. And then second, I'd love to hear about like, what are some of the fascinating tweaks that you have seen people implement that have really helped them? Yeah, it's probably my favorite. My favorite part of researching for this book was speaking to people who are just unbelievably talented, but they found ways to be, be even better than they were before. And I spoke to some of them in interviews. I'll, I'll tell you one example. But first, this quote, this quote, the idea behind the quote is that from the outside, when you when you see the finished product, you don't watch people train. You don't watch artists in the studio for days. You don't watch musicians in the studio for days. You don't watch filmmakers writing, scratching things up, putting crunching paper into balls and throwing it out. You, you don't get to see the process, the messiness of everything. What you see in this, especially in the social media laden world, is the polished final product of everything. You get to watch the movie. You get to enjoy the artwork. You get to listen to the music you get to watch the athletes perform and so on, but you don't see any of the messiness that goes into it. And so the, there's this illusion that everything is fully formed, that it just kind of is a miracle. It just happens that way. And that's just not true. And a lot of what looks like some giant leap in talent or performance is the product of a lot of small things that happened over a long period of time. It's like compound interest. You get a little bit each day and it builds on whatever happened the day before. One of my favorite examples of this is an Olympic swimmer who swam the backstroke for the United States in the, two, in the 1988 and 1992 Olympic Games. His name is Dave Burkoff. And I spoke to him about his, his experience. He was um, an unusually intellectual swimmer. He was a little bit smaller in build than some of the other swimmers. He was about five foot 10, which is not small, but a lot of the swimmers swimming the backstroke next to him as they lined up were 6'3", 6'4". They were much taller and much bigger than he was. And so he was at a physical disadvantage in that respect. Um, so what Burkhoff did was he he worked with a coach. He was at, in college. He was at Harvard. Harvard is obviously a good academic institution, but it's not really the place you go if you want to be an Olympic swimmer. It's not the traditional place to go. But Burkhoff and his coach, Joe Bernal, were... Um, 
just unusually experimental. They tried different things. They didn't just say, hey, this is the way everyone swims the backstroke. Let's do this better than anyone else. They said, well, why do they swim this way? Is this really the best way to do it? And so with a series of tweaks, this is why I say it's evolution rather than revolution. They made small changes to the way people swam backstroke. And um, one thing they noticed, this is something that Burkhoff himself noticed, was that when you watch swimmers, when they're fully emerged, uh, submerged under the water, uh, they swim faster than when they're above the water or halfway above the water when parts of their bodies emerge. And that's because there's friction and, you know, you've got surface tension that you have to swim through and so on. And so he said, well, why do we spend so little time underwater? Why don't we just spend as long as we can? And his coach said to him, well, your body when you're underwater just cries out to, to get oxygen. It just wants to be above the water. And so Burkhoff trained his body. He figured out a way to, to start the backstroke by swimming the first 40 or, 40 or 45 meters. In other words, half of, the, half of the, the race almost completely underwater. It became known as the Burkhoff blast off and it helped him break the world record. He swam faster than anyone else had. Eventually, the other swimmers caught up because they used the same technique. But everyone was like, this is a, a revolution. We've never seen anything like this. But for Burkhoff, it was like five years of tweaking and, and mm -hmm. testing and figuring out. Um, and it's a great example of that sort of experimental mindset, asking questions about everything the way kids do, because adults don't do that much. But kids are endlessly curious. And people like Burkhoff, even in adulthood, seem to have that curiosity. What's one of the things that surprised you the most in your research? Or I, I guess this is two part. I'd love to know what surprised you the most and what did you change your mind about from your research? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that surprised me the most, I read about this study, really interesting. I'm very interested in how you put together a team. One of the things I noticed when I was in grad school is the recruiters would come onto campus and sometimes they would speak to us, the grad students, because we were the TAs of some of the, the undergrads. And they would say to us, you know, who are your smartest students? Who should we speak to? These are these were recruiters from some of the dominant firms, the big tech firms, the big consulting firms, big finance firms, hedge funds, and so on. And they would say to us, um, who's your, you know, you, you, you teach social psychology. Who's the smartest social psychology student you have? And then I would say, well, the student with the highest grade is this one. And they'd say, okay, thank you very much. Then they would go to the math department and say, who's the smartest mathematician you have? Then they'd go to the chemistry department. Who's the best organic chemistry student? Who's the best Russian literature student? And they would go and they would just basically pluck the top student in every domain. And that's who they would be recruiting. And I, I remember thinking, and I knew this because I'd spoken to friends of mine who were grad students in other departments, and we all had the same conversations. And I remember thinking, what an odd way to recruit. Surely that's not a way to make a team. You just take people and mash them together from all these disciplines. But one of the surprising things and things that I changed my mind about, I guess mm -hmm. I can answer both questions yeah. here, is that that is, that is very smart because it creates what is known as non-redundancy in, in network terms. These people are very good at what they do. They can learn very quickly, but they have very different backgrounds. They've been kind of steeped in a different intellectual tradition. They think about things a bit differently. They have a different focus. It's not that they don't agree. They're not in opposition. It's just that they have tangential interests and backgrounds, and that makes them very valuable on a team. And so that's how a lot of these companies work. They might have a core group of people. Let's say it's a hedge fund. They have a core group of financial mathematicians who know exactly what the business of hedge fund investing is. But then they have this satellite group of people who are non-redundant. 
they're smart people, but they don't know anything about the, the core business of investing. And then they, they learn some of it, but they don't start there. And I thought that was really interesting. And then taking it one step further, I, I got some, uh, I spoke to some people from uh, companies like Pixar. And um, Pixar, the animation company that makes, you know, a lot of Academy Award winning animation films. And they go one step further. They say, yes, we like our core group of people, you know, our animators, our story writers and so on. Then we have our non-redundant people who are a little bit different in background. But then we have a black sheep. We actually get people in who we know are going to cause chaos. And this, this surprised me a lot. And it surprised me because there are even studies showing that if you, if you have a group of people who are trying to solve a puzzle and you let them work with an AI bot that they are told is going to help them, but actually you program the bot to give them random information that's essentially an agent of chaos. It's just telling them random nonsense. They solve the problem quicker with the help help of this random agent of chaos because it shakes everything up. It makes you think about things differently. It gives you new ideas. And that's what the non-redundant and black sheep members of these groups do. And I found that fascinating and so surprising because I'd always thought, you know, even when I think about my, my colleagues at NYU, the thing that I most want is, is harmony. I want everyone to kind of get along. I want it to feel like a big family. But if you're all striving for one thing, that's actually not a great recipe for success. And I've, I've always found that quite surprising and fascinating. Mm, yeah. I got a couple other things that I want to ask you about before that. I would just love to ask, is there anything that we haven't covered in the book that you want to make sure that we talk about? I think we've had pretty good coverage. Um, there, there are a lot of ideas. It's a very, it's a quite a broad book. It goes into a lot of different subjects, but I think we've covered quite a lot of it. But uh, no, I'm very curious to hear what your okay. what your last questions are. Okay, um, I can you tease out one of one of the very interesting ideas I think that you talk. I think it's towards the end of the book. Is you talk about exploring and exploitation? Can mm-hmm. you talk about those and kind of what they are? Yeah, absolutely. This is this is a great would have been a good candidate for most important or insightful idea that I came across in studying for the book. This is an evolutionary theory, and it goes back to what it meant to, say, hunt and gather food. There are two processes for doing this. One is exploration. Exploration is when you you hunt far and wide, you explore, you look for alternatives. In the domains of, of work where we are trying to be creative or trying new techniques, this means trying everything. Um, the studies that look at exploration and exploitation focus, for example, on filmmakers and artists. And so you have filmmakers like, for example, Peter Jackson is really well known for the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films and these kind of very intense long form fantasy stories. And he is the master of those that genre of, of film. But before that, he was making horror films and all sorts of other films that are completely different. And that was his period of exploration. There are painters who are the same way. Jackson Pollock is well known for his drip paintings with the, you know, his blue poles. They're all basically just drip paintings where he threw paint at the canvas and they're very large canvases. But he was doing smaller works using completely different techniques before he came upon this. Some of them were much more realistic works. They were much more realism based rather than uh, conceptual. And so he had a completely different background there. But he was trying different things constantly before he stumbled on this this. Uh, uh, drip paint technique and that's exploration but beyond exploration once you've explored once you've seen what the landscape looks like you have to invest all your time and energy exploiting whatever seems like the most promising path and so research that looks at when we're going to hit the best periods in our careers 
always shows that you have to begin by exploring just the way Peter Jackson and Jackson Pollock did. But then when you find something that works, you have to be single-minded. You have to say no to everything else, put aside all the other stuff that you were kind of toying with and throw all your energy and weight behind this one thing that you think is going to be most useful. And so in that case, you had Peter Jackson doing these films and only these films for a while. Jackson Pollock became known for just this technique. And so what that means in our own careers and our own lives is you have to alternate between periods of breath where you say yes to everything. I'm going to try everything. I'm going to figure out what's what's best for me. And then you've got to figure out how which one's best and really put all your attention into that and focus into that. You need the first phase because that shows you what's best. You Otherwise, you don't know what the best technique is for you or the best approach or the best career. But then you need the second technique as well because otherwise you're not going to make the most of whatever seems to be the most fruitful option. And so you need to explore broadly and then exploit narrowly in that order to hit these kind of golden periods in your career and in your life. The other thing uh, that I want to ask you about, and we've, we've talked about it very indirectly, but you come out towards then you say the most important thing for becoming unstuck is action. And yeah. so as we're uh, moving towards the end of our time, would you mind just, just underscoring that point and why it's so important? Yeah. I, you know, if you think about it, getting unstuck is about acting ultimately. And the book, I focus a lot on the right kind of it, dealing with the emotional consequences of being stuck and the right thought patterns and strategies. And all of that is very important, but it's all in the service of action. Right. I mean, if you're not acting, you're not actually going to get unstuck. It doesn't matter how much good thinking and good emotional work you do, you've got to act. So that's the the basic sort of theoretical insight. But there's also a huge amount of evidence that once you start acting just a little bit, that greases the wheels for bigger action, for action that really makes a difference. So when you speak to people who have really struggled with creative uh, tasks, one of my favorite is um, Jeff Tweedy, the front man of Wilco, who's also a writer. So he writes music and he writes books. He talks about waking up in the morning and just feeling like he's hit a wall sometimes. He's got nothing. He's, he hits writer's block or creative block. And um, he basically says that what he does in those moments is because he knows action is so important. He lowers his threshold and says, instead of trying to write something great or a great piece of music, he'll try and write something actively bad, like a really boring sentence or a sentence that doesn't make a lot of sense or something incoherent or a musical phrase that's not a, not all that interesting. And he knows he can do that. But once he's done that, he says he pours out the bad stuff. He pours it out as though it's almost a liquid in his head and then makes room for the good stuff that's sitting just beneath it. And then that's what starts to, to make the process easier. He gets unstuck by doing. And so often small acts of doing, even if they themselves are not useful, pave the way for bigger acts that themselves become very useful. You know, just as one one final thing that I would uh, maybe just love to close with is, and I, you've mentioned several stories, but is there just any last story of getting unstuck that is particularly inspirational to you that we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, let me see. I I really, I like the story of um, this painter, Phil Hansen. Um, it's one of my favorite stories. And his story, it's both inspirational and I think, does a great job of illustrating the importance of being able to pivot and to work with constraints. Mm -hmm. So Phil Hansen was very well known for a style of painting known as pointillism, where you take the brush and you 
put small dots on the on the canvas and you put thousands of small dots that from afar come to look like something coherent and that was he had speaking in the language of exploration and exploitation that was his exploitation he'd figured out of all the styles that pointillism was his thing and he made the most of it the problem with that style is it requires a lot of precision and the same repeated movement over and over again, thousands and thousands of times. But Hansen developed a neurological tremor. And so his little dots turned into what looked like tadpoles. They started to not be dots anymore. And that totally undermined the whole style of pointillism for him. It made it impossible for him to practice that style of art. And he was absolutely dejected for a while. And in the beginning, he tried, like, how can I figure this out? And he tried making dots with other implements, and he tried to attach the brush in a different way, and nothing seemed to work. It only seemed to make his tremor worse. And so eventually, he, he just let go, and he said, this is not going to work for me. I've got to try something different. And so what he started to do was he started to ex explore. So he started to experiment with new type, types of art, new ways of making art. Like, for a while, he would do things like, you know, I'm going to create an artwork using just paint and a two by four. That's his, mm. instead of a brush, mm -hmm. he'll use a two by four. The nice thing about that is it doesn't re require precision. So his tremor wasn't a problem. Or he would paint with his feet because he couldn't use his, his uh, the, the dexterity of his hands. And he started to experiment with constraints where each artwork, he would have a particular constraint. And then he eventually would make an artwork that cost him in, in total less than a dollar. He'd have to use all the things that made the artwork less than a dollar. And so he went to a Starbucks and he asked them for 100 cups. And they said yes. And he was like, I couldn't believe it. For zero, I spent zero on 100 cups at Starbucks and I ended up using that in the artwork. So the thing that he talks about was, A, the, the, the moment when he realized he had to do things differently. He had to go back to exploring after exploiting this pointillist technique for so long. But also how liberating it was to use these constraints to propel himself forward. Because sometimes if you're trying to do something creative, knowing that you can only use a dollar or only use a two by four or only use your feet is unbelievably paradoxically liberating. And uh, I've found that too in my own experiences. So I, I really do love the story that he tells. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, Adam, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. That's Those are the two social media platforms that I tend to use most often, particularly LinkedIn. Uh, and the book is available basically anywhere you, you buy your books. You can find it online. You can find it in bookstores. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Caleb. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for being on the podcast and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thanks so much. I think coming out of that conversation with Adam, one of the things that really stood out to me is just the importance of self-reflection in that, whether it be in the tweaks of learning what are the, some of the minor or small adjustments that I can make that lead to greater performance or evaluating whether or not I have plateaued in certain areas or if a plateau is approaching and what, what I need to do differently in that and what are some of the things that that can help take me to you know the the quote-unquote next level or whatever that might be however one of the things that I know about myself is that I can often get stuck in the overthinking the overanalyzing and so realizing that as important as that self-reflection is as important as it is to think about yourself and what you're doing and why you're doing it 
you can't get stuck there. You have to do something at some point because just as Adam was saying, it's it's the action that leads to it. I love this quote from, uh, I don't know if it's a quote specifically, but it is this idea from John Acuff is that the antidote to overthinking is action. And that's exactly what Adam was talking about in this. The other idea that really stands out to me is this idea of preventative maintenance. What he mentioned with the airplanes and and learning that um, not even necessarily, well, I guess it is learning, but paying attention to the small problems, paying attention to the small things that are happening, whether that's the, the A problems or the B problems, the C or the D as well, and learning that if we're able to address some of these smaller problems, that they will we will cut them off. They won't end up becoming big problems in that. And... And also in terms of the the dealing with the problems now instead of dealing with them later. I think about it in terms of just being, for those of us who are leaders, being a good steward of the leadership that has been given to you. Because in one sense, that is why you're a leader. You're meant, you're, you are meant to deal with those problems now so that they don't become problems for other people later. And how that could be a real that could be a great gift as a leader that you can give to the people that you lead of dealing with the problems now instead of waiting until later, until until they maybe not only uh, affect you, because if, you're, because if you ignore them, they don't only affect you at some point. They start affecting other people. And it's important for us to deal with those. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about from this conversation Remember, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you want to continue on this journey of lifelong learning, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I'm just giving bunches of recommendations of some of the things that I'm learning about from podcasts to movies to music and just all sorts of other goodies as well. And yeah, with that, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to... uh, you for joining me on this podcast as well and thank you to adam as well for the just the great conversation and yeah i think that's all that i have for today thanks so much for listening my my name is caleb mason keep learning and keep growing